Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis in New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. So welcome, I'm excited to talk to you. You're in Minnesota, right? Yes, I am. So we're talking uh, one day after Biden officially won. So how does it feel? How is it in Minnesota? And what are your general thoughts on the election? Well, I, I thought the election, uh, you know, we were all waiting. Uh, there's a lot of strong feelings in both directions. Uh, I personally am a little bit more Democratic leaning. So uh, this was this was a nice win. I, I'm very happy. I was very stressed out. I didn't get a lot of sleep for a few days. Even when I close my eyes now, I hear CNN and Fox. <laughs> well, we got better sleep than 2016, I'm sure, right? I, I definitely had a tough time sleeping 2016. But uh, it's, a, it's, it's a weird time. I'm glad it's over. But it's not, right? I mean, you never know. You never know. He's, going, he's not going anywhere. Uh, <laughs> and uh, his uh, 70 million people that voted for him are not going anywhere. So these ideas aren't going anywhere. And uh, one of the reasons, uh, we put up a post uh, the day after, one of the reasons, one of my inspirations for starting Boney was him, as well as a number of other organizations that started in New York that I know were, are because of him and, mm-hmm. and just sort of environment created by, by him. So um, did, did that have any, any impact on you starting your organization? Tell us about how you started your organization. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, in, a, in an interesting way, uh, not necessarily. I, I think uh, as far as uh, Norwich, Bangladesh goes and what we're doing here, uh, I grew up in Bangladesh. So I was there. I was living in Bangladesh until I was, I was 18. And when I came to the U.S., I became an economist and I started development economics because I felt like I kind of saw a little bit of poverty. I kind of know some of the problems of a low income country or Bangladesh being a low middle income right now, a low middle income country. And, uh, you know, as an economist, as a a teacher, I teach uh, students and all that. And I, in fact, I take students to Bangladesh to learn about development. And we see all the NGOs, we go to the rural areas. And I'm always itching to do something, right? I mean, you you do, you read about these, you do a lot of research, but there's something to be said about actually getting your hands dirty and getting things done. And the real world is, as they say, it may sound like a cliche, uh, but it is different than what the textbook models are saying. It's not that the textbook models don't give us some ideas. They do. Uh, they give us some general ideas over decades of what, what uh, people have put together. But when you go step out and you try to implement things or you want to kind of get things done, I mean, I'm assuming when you started Boney, you started realizing some of those real world obstacles or real world realities. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. But you want to do something. You want to make a difference in the field. And, and so that's kind of where it started from. Uh, I grew up in a I want to say middle-income family, uh, probably uh, a little bit more on the lower end. Uh, and I, I, saw, I saw a lot of poverty growing up, so I, I had to do something. The other inspiration is obviously my students. Uh, I take them to Bangladesh, and we, they go there for about two or three weeks. So roughly, uh, they take a course with me on development. We go to Bangladesh, we go to the villages, we go talk to Professor Yunus, we go talk to people in Bragg. Then we go talk to the actual clients in the rural areas who are beneficiaries of their projects. And the students, they want to do something. They're young. Yeah, I was young too uh, at some point. And they want to do something right away. They want to enact change. And I always tell them, be a fly on the wall. You're here to learn. You cannot just walk into a country and within two weeks try to make a change. You have to first learn the customs, the culture, how things are. 
So whenever we come back and uh, we have another follow-up course where we make sense of what we read in the books and what we saw on the ground, they always want to do something. And up to this point, you know, students get busy, I get busy, we didn't get to do a whole lot. But this is once in a hundred year thing. This pandemic doesn't happen every day. And a country like Bangladesh, no matter how we think about it, they're not ready for this. Nobody is. Uh, the U.S. is not we're ready. Not, we're not ready, exactly. We're not ready, right? So I figure if I am going to do something, if I'm going to get my students to help out and I'm going to help work as well, this is the right time. And on top of that, you saw the Cyclone Amphan kind of come up earlier uh, in this year. And then the flooding. The flooding, uh, people sometimes don't recognize. This year's flood was one of the worst in decades. And so you have that. And then Bangladesh is a small country. They depend on trade. They really depend on trade. They're part of the supply system of the world as far, as far as textile and all that goes. And we also depend on stuff coming from outside into our country. We don't have a lot of resources. So when you think of that, it's, it's a triple whammy. I mean, they're, they're getting really hit from all directions. They're getting hit by flooding. They're getting hit by uh, COVID-19. And they're getting hit by like global economic crisis inside and outside. So, so this is as good a time as any uh, to kind of do do something. So I'd say that would be my inspiration in general. And so you started the organization Nourish Bangladesh in 2020? We literally started in 2020. We started in June. So wow. it's not a whole long, a lot of wow, time. you've gotten a lot done. I did some browsing on your website. So the, the model, I, as I understand it, and tell me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. is you partner with organizations that are on the ground in Bangladesh and you help uh, disperse funding uh, that you raise from here to those organizations. Is that correct? So sort of like a, if you're in, I'm in banking, so like, like a clearinghouse, like sort of model, like, like so, so you're not directly dealing with individuals that are receiving these funds. Am I correct? Yeah, so that's generally correct. I'll just kind of add two things. One, uh, when we use the word partner, we have to be careful with that, right? Uh, so in some sense, the NGOs or the volunteer groups, the grassroots volunteer groups that we are funding, we don't, we don't think of this, them as partners. We think of them as organizations that we have vetted. So one thing uh, I felt living in the U.S. for roughly 20 years now is that whenever we send money back home or we try to help out when things go wrong, uh, we we go through personal connections. We know some relative or somebody's brother or whatnot who's doing some good work there, but it's not very systematic. Uh, And an example I oftentimes use is I know somebody whose brother does good work in Maimansing. And uh, when we, something happens, we give the money, it goes to Maimansing. But the question is, is Maimansing the only part of Bangladesh that needs help. Is, is this the most systematic way of doing things? I mean, as a donor, sometimes I felt like I want to help people in the Rohingya refugee camps. And I know that if I send my money to, say, Bidanondo, which is an amazing NGO, they don't work in Rohingya refugee camp. If I send my money to, say, BRAC, they do amazing work in Bangladesh, but BRAC cannot tell me that I'm going to use your money exactly for feeding purposes or whatnot. So we wanted to be that group that does the research on behalf of the donors that vets these NGOs and makes that information available to the donors so that the money that they're sending, they know exactly where it is being used and they can tell us, like, this is where we want it to be used, uh, depending on the size of the donation, you would imagine. I mean, if you gave me five bucks and said, I want you to give the five bucks to this NGO, we'd probably say, give it directly. Uh, but in general, we are doing the research part. And once, once an NGO or a volunteer group kind of passes that threshold of our vetting process, then we are kind of fundraising for all of them in some sense. And if an NGO or a volunteer group does not pass the vetting process, we don't talk about them. So we will not kind of put anybody down. We will just say they're not meeting our criteria. And we will not even kind of talk about that. But we will highlight the strengths of the ones that are passing a minimum threshold of transparency and kind of aligning with what we are doing. 
if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, that's, that's so important. And, and, and for two reasons. First, uh, a lot of people here are hesitant to send bon- uh, money to Bangladesh because they're afraid of where the money, uh, the money not going into the right hands. And two, it's so easy to start uh, sort of like an organization or even like a GoFundMe uh, here, right? Anyone. And we at Boney, we, we probably receive at least one message a week about somebody starting a GoFundMe. And uh, it's so easy to start one. So it's great that you're doing that research for people. What, what goes into that? So what goes into you researching uh, a company, uh, uh, an organization that you vetted? Yeah, so, I mean, we basically uh, send our money to three types of uh, groups. So one is uh, NGOs that are registered in the U.S. So we are actually working in four countries right now. So we are working in U.S., Canada, U.K., and Australia. So in each of these countries, they have certain ones that are registered in their countries. And then there are those NGOs that are working in Bangladesh, registered in Bangladesh, but not registered in the country that we are collecting funds in. And then there are the volunteer groups, like grassroots volunteer groups. So we... In some sense, you can never be 100% sure unless you are there on the ground yourself as to whether it's being used perfectly. But that's the idea of hedging, right? So you are, you're kind of spreading your money across a whole bunch of them after you're vetting them and you're hoping like, you know, things will go well. Now, having said that, in terms of vetting process, the way we kind of do this is, remember, Norwich Bangladesh is all about helping with food relief at this point. That's all we've been doing for the last four or five months. And so we asked them a bunch of standardized questions and these are ans- answered by... Uh, top-level executives in the NGO, or if it's the grassroots volunteer group, then the person who's answering has to be in the field doing the work themselves with their volunteers, and they have to answer all those questions. So once they give me an initial answer, and then they kind of sign off saying, you know, you can make this available to anybody and all that, so this is not within uh, information, this is, you, you, can, you may share it with others. Uh, then we do an interview, and then we do pretty much an hour long. Some interviews go an hour, some interviews go 30 minutes, because we look at their answers, we do some research online, we kind of ask people around, and then we are like, okay, we, we are, agree with these questions or these answers, but not this one, and we need to figure out a bit more. Uh, so we really care about overhead cost. We really care about if you're going to give out food, what exactly are you putting in there? We really care about transparency, like, okay, how do I know that the food has reached the person that you've sent it to? So we really grill them on that. And once we grill them on that, and we also record that video, and also we take the permission that we will make this available to donors and anybody interested if required and say they give us their permission. So that's two layers of them kind of giving us their word and explaining in details how they're going to get things done. And then we continue asking them questions as we send them funds, because we send them funds on a monthly or bi-monthly or once every one and a half months, uh, some version of that. And so then we also keep in touch kind of asking them, hey, did you use the money the way you said it? This time, what did you put in the bag? I don't want to hear you telling me this is two weeks worth of food. Instead, you tell me what exactly you put in the bag because that's way more important than, because imagine an NGO kind of going around saying, hey, we gave people a month worth of food. What did you put in the bag? Five kilograms of rice. Well, I don't think five kilograms of rice for a family of four is one month of food. So we try to get rid of those subjective stuff that people say and kind of stick to objective questions that we can compare across. So vetting process, they fill out the form, video, uh, then we have an interview, we grill them, and then we keep pushing back and forth, just making sure they're getting the work done and giving us more information on what they did with their money. So I know it's not just you, we have a large team. And as you mentioned earlier, you have, you have members of your team that are in Bangladeshi, which I really find interesting. And I find that, I think it's great that non-Bangladeshis are interested in this. And you mentioned one of the reasons is because they're part of your class and they go with you to Bangladesh. I'm curious, do you find that a lot, you know, they come back and obviously when they're there in person, just like us, when I go to Bangladesh, I see the 
poverty in front of me or if I, you know, I see the, the hardship in front of me, I, I get really passionate about it. But I'll be completely honest with you. When you come back and you come back to your daily life here, a little bit of that dissipates. And I, and it's unfortunate that I say that. And I still try to do things, but it's not at the level that I envision doing while I'm there, while the poverty is in front of me. Do you find that, that little, that level of uh, passion dissipates when they come back? Or do you feel like you see your students continue to have that sort of passion? I want to tackle this question in two separate parts. One is in, as it relates to knowledge Bangladesh and one is in general. So, I mean, okay. I've been teaching for the last, or I've been at this current job for the last 10 years. Uh, so it's been a decade. And I've run this program about four times now, not Norwich Bangladesh, the off-campus program. Okay. So when I do take students, they come back. I, ha- I want to say I, I see two kinds of stories. One kind of stories, uh, actually, I want to say three. So one type of students, they go, they experience exactly as you said. They go there, they feel very strongly connected. They come back, they write about it. We have sessions, awareness sessions for the college and all that. And then, you know, they go work in the private sector. They get busy with their life. And you know how U.S. labor market is. They, yeah. You squeeze every single hour out of yep. your life. So you don't yep. have a lot of time. So that's one group of students. I don't know how much pro bono work they're doing. They stay in touch and all that. And now then there's the other group that I have seen. They go there and they become development economists or they okay. go for public policy or they get interested in, in the state department because we go work, we go talk with people from USAID, for example. Yeah. Uh, we go talk with people from DFID and you know, all that kind of uh, institutions. And they realize how much power they have and how, how much of a difference they can make in a country like Bangladesh. So some of them get really interested in that. Uh, and as I said, some just want to go work in the real field. So I've seen students, like, before I went, I thought I was going to be a doctor, but now I'm kind of like, oh, I want to do development. And then there's the third type, which I think people don't necessarily always want to talk about, but I've seen that third type, where the students go and they come back and they say, Faris, you know what? Before I went, I thought this is what I wanted to do. But after I saw that, the enormity of the problem, and that mm. part is the key, the enormity of the problem just tells me, like, I don't think I can make a difference here. Wow. I, I, I look at this. I looked at all the levels. Like, we talk to government officials, too. We talk to local uh, leaders, too. We talk to different managers inside these NGOs and whatnot. And we talk to the people in the field. And they're like, you know, I don't think I can walk into Bangladesh and make a meaningful impact. And the problems are enormous. So I think my role would be to kind of work wherever I work and potentially donate or whatnot. But I don't think I can be the vehicle for change. And in a way, for me, I, 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 say, I think that's a very honest opinion for the ones who say that. And they still stay connected with development, but not necessarily directly becoming development economists themselves. Or, or you know, they don't, they don't have to be an economist, but a development worker themselves. So you see those three types. And uh, irrespective, it seems to make a big difference uh, in their perspective. That, that takes a level of self-awareness, to be honest with yourself and others about that. I find that I didn't think about that either. And you're right. I mean, they could probably make more impact going back to the private sector and donating than, you know, maybe getting in the way um, of of, of other people making impact or taking up a spot that somebody else that really is, uh, has the time or or, or, um, energy to to give. No, I... I no, I, I think, think that. people don't recognize that all the time. And uh, the as far as Norish Bangladesh goes and uh, non-Bangladeshis working here, I think the thing that I've been finding and I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised is a lot of non-Bangladeshis, they want to do something. They just don't know where to start. So they're, they're thinking, okay, 
I want to help. Which country will I help, first of all? Because when they are thinking about it, Bangladesh is not necessarily the first country they think of. Maybe they read about Brazil in the news and COVID-19 being very difficult. So maybe that's where their focus is. But then they're thinking, I'm not an expert. I cannot start something. So I'll just put some money in some big organization and call it a day. So when I actually approach them, uh, and my students approached them, some of my students who went to Bangladesh, they naturally felt a connection. They were like, oh, I can help? Sure, what can I do? And one thing that the Norwich Bangladesh does is we don't expect you to be all-rounded in everything. We don't at all. We say, you all volunteer, whatever you can help with, help. So we are kind of thinking of a logo for our in, in Norwich Bangladesh. Are you good with pictures? Are you good with graphics design? You can do that. Do you want to try out something with websites? Do you want to try with fundraising? Whatever it is that you're good at, and at least make people aware. Uh, so I, I, I'm very optimistic with the young generation, at least the ones I've been dealing with. I have to name drop Carleton College because that's where I teach. And uh, I guess a lot of my experience are coming from these students there. Uh, but they, they want to help. They really want to help. They just don't know how to get it done. And it's not even college kids. I have a few uh, individuals helping us, non-Bangladeshis, who are, you know, full-time professionals. And when I reached yeah. out to them, they said, oh, yeah, sure, I'd be willing to help. And when they came and they saw how we were conducting our work and it's actually making a difference out there, I mean, right now we are helping out in 11 different districts. We've reached about 4,000 households. and You know, we've provided food for about a month worth for all those households and all that. Uh, it, it makes a difference. Like, they see it. And they yeah. when, you, when they see a number like $10, on the average, can fit a family for like two weeks. Is four, that true? Yeah, generally, yep, yep. $10 for a few weeks, wow. Yeah, and then family of four, we're not talking about individual. Now, of course, we're not talking, you know, meat and protein, a yeah. nice balanced diet. I mean, that would be yeah. ideal. Uh, but yeah. when you're stretched for funds, you kind of go for the dry food, like rice, no. lentil, potato, a little bit of oil maybe. And, and then sometimes you cut down on things that would be a bit too expensive. You want to reach as many people and help out because people right. are starving in certain parts of Bangladesh, which is, you know, kind of sad. So I, I don't know if that kind of was a long-winded yep. way of answering that. No, it's great. You're, you're, so as you mentioned, you're an economics professor. Have, how have you applied what you have learned and what you teach in your classes in sort of, you know, running this organization, you know, from like, you know, economics and uh, macro and microeconomics and, and just general um, economic theory? So I, I think there are at least two things that comes to mind. Uh, one is I have a... I have a feel, because I'm a little bit of an expert, not a major one, but a little bit of an expert on where in Bangladesh we can make the most impact. So, for example, when we first started, and there's lots of little examples like that, but when we first started, everybody wanted to know, okay, who are we getting around? Like, who are we? How, why are we in a good place to be able to make a difference? Who are we to be able to vet NGOs? So I think the fact that I was a development economist gave them a little bit of understanding. Right. Like, okay, wait, we can get around him because he's a development economist and whatnot. Second thing, when we said, okay, what are we going to help with? We are fundraising, well and good. Are we going to help with education? Are we going to help, help with health? I mean, one of the first things you think of is health. COVID-19, well, health should be important. What, what, what is it that we're going to help with? And as a development economist, I kind of said, look, we don't know how much fund we are going to be able to raise. And one of the most important things is food during a disaster like this. COVID-19 patient, if you try to buy you know, a ventilator and whatnot, I mean, we can do that, but that's going to be a lot of money and it will be able to help a few people. And there's nothing wrong with that, but we don't know if we'll be able to do that. But as far as feeding people who need the food, that we can do, we can make some serious impact there. So little pieces of information like that, that I just am aware of, 
Because, you know, this is not like writing a book where there, it has a certain structure. You go along and certain things that you've learned across the years, they become handy. So then we said, okay, where are we going to help out? Uh, so we said, okay, let's look at North Bengal, for example. Let's look at some poverty maps. Let's kind of go to... And then these are not things that I'm saying I am way better at doing than an, an, an average professional would be. But I already am aware where the sources are. I can kind of jump to that faster than some other people, but my students did a pretty good research. And one thing I would say to your listeners, if, if you want to start something like this, jump in and start. Like, don't wait. You'll never become a massive expert. Nobody is ever a massive yeah, expert. Yeah, do it. Best way just, to learn, yep. Just jump in there. And if it fails, you know, it may slow down. It may slow start. That's okay. That's all right. So I would say some of those information helped. Uh, the name helped when other people heard like, oh, a professor's on board of development and then other, some other faculty members in other countries joined. I think those, that networking definitely helped up to a point. Uh, and as far as uh, donation goes and all that goes, there's a literature on that in the behavioral economics. Uh, it's, it's pretty hot okay. these days. I'm not sure how much useful that was for us, <laughs> frankly. Mm. So I began by thinking like, oh, maybe we can use this rule. And then... It's like, no, like it's much more personal connections. When you know people, you talk to them, you explain what you're doing. They tend to want to donate. But if yeah. you try those other nudging techniques, it may work in certain scenarios, not so much here. So It's an interesting, they're, they're an interesting <laughs> read. I know behavior economics is like the hard thing now, starting with Freakonomics and now it's just massive, but it's an interesting read. But I mean, real world doesn't always apply. Uh, one thing you talked about is, uh, is the poverty heat maps. I'm, I'm curious. Because I have a tough time with this, is finding good data on Bangladesh. Like, what's a good source of data on Bangladesh, specifically uh, around poverty and, and, and other metrics like that? So that's always going to be difficult. It depends on what is the definition of poverty and how well the surveys are done. Mm. So once you kind of take that into account, uh, I think World Bank does a pretty good job. So if you went Royal to Royal Bank, okay. So if you went to Google and typed in uh, poverty map Bangladesh World okay. Bank, it, it's going to do a pretty good job there. And they'll have okay. different measures of poverty. Headcount is not a bad one. It tells you how many people okay. in the area live who on a less than two dollars a day. And when I say two dollars, I mean if they were living in the U.S. on two dollars a day. I don't mean. $2 in Bangladesh, which may go much further. Yeah. One of the things I looked, I, I researched was reasons why nonprofits fail. And and interestingly enough, we were talking about Trump earlier, but Ben Carson, one of his uh, cabinet members, made a comment when he was running for office. And it was interesting. He actually said, I don't know why he's notoriously anti-nonprofit, but he said 90, 90% of nonprofits fail. And obviously that number is greatly exaggerated. Sure. But I did re I did find a stat from a reputable source that I think it said thirty percent of nonprofits fail within the first year. Mm -hmm. So I found that really interesting, and I and I'm curious to get your thoughts on on why. And there's there were a few things that it mentioned, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on why you think a lot of nonprofits fail. So I, I would say you want to think of you want to have some kind of a reference point, and one of the reference point is for profit. Okay, so the reason I say that's a good reference point is because for profits are paying people to work. If somebody leaves the organization, you're not like, oh my God, somebody left. You just go and hire somebody. Hiring process is costly. I know that and all that. But for-profit, they're not able to compete with wage the same way a for-profit can. And they, have, they need people who are internally motivated. And so if they lose somebody who is internally motivated, it's not easy to replace and all that. So the reason I bring that up is for for-profit also. It's a form of entrepreneurship. It's a form of new venture. It's not easy. Those statistics, uh, I mean, I don't want to quote it because there might be some business people who say, 
hey, you quoted the wrong number, but we know it's pretty high. The second thing that you're dealing with is funding. Funding is a big problem. Uh, so for NGOs, what you're doing is you're doing a lot of grant writing and you're trying to get people to fund. We don't have to, you know, we are not suffering from that, but a lot of the NGOs are. Uh, and when you go for fund writing, the institutions that give you funding, they have certain rules, like you have to follow this A, B, C, and D. And when you are given those rules, NGOs that are incumbent, NGOs that have been in the field for much longer, they kind of know how to get those tick marks filled. They know, know how to do their A, B, Cs, and Ds. The new NGO has a very difficult time uh, adjusting to that. And then things change and they're not as well networked. So funding dries up oftentimes. If somebody leaves, they cannot really deal with that as well. And you have the same issues that for-profits do. You put all of that together, it's expected to be pretty high. And that's why you are going to see more and more, there are big behemoth NGOs that survive because they have people who are good at grant writing. They have people mm. who have, you know, we're getting money, if not for microfinance, then for health. If not for health, then for education. They can keep the payroll running. Small NGOs that are specialized in just one thing or another, they can fall out of favor very easily. Uh, mm. And uh, the funding dries up and they're done. So it's, it's a difficult place for NGOs. Yeah, yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Another thing I was reading is one of the issues uh, with nonprofits is scope creep, or sort of, I guess, the, the term more, appropriately is needs creep. So for example, uh, an, an organization, let's say that is focused on, on food relief, like you, like, like you said, you know, they, they have a great model and it's working well and it's reaching the right folks, but then they, you know, they have, uh, there's an, another need for, let's say, uh, I don't know, providing clothing or, you know, uh, they, and they try to apply that and sort of, you know, stretch themselves too thin. And a lot of that times, you know, ends up, um, you know, back backfiring and 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 not, and, and uh, impacting the organization's ability to continue. So, have you have have you come across that? I mean, as as you're trying to expand, you're vetting more organizations. Um, is that something you've come across? Yes. Yeah, so this happens a lot, uh, and I, I'll give you a very concrete example that we are facing. It's starting to be winter in Bangladesh, and mm-hmm. for those of us who are from Bangladesh who are aware of it. Uh, it gets pretty cold in the northern areas and they need uh, blankets, kombol, right? Uh, kombol distribution is a big, kombol meaning blanket, uh, distribution yeah. is a big thing. So we've had a few groups reach out to us, even people that we are funding, uh, some of the volunteer groups that we're funding, they're like, Do you, are you guys interested in giving up blankets? The winter is here. And we were kind of like, no, we, we really want to stick to what we are doing. We, yeah. we really want to do that. So you have to recognize for us, things are slightly easier because we are kind of saying, okay, if donors give us fund, we are all volunteers. We're not taking a single penny. We have no operational cost. When donors give us fund, we send it out. We distribute it out. We have already vetted the NGOs. And when donors don't give us fund, we kind of wait. Now for other NGOs that have people on payroll, they cannot do that. And Mm. people, unfortunately, donors, they kind of hit that fatigue pretty easily. So people who have donated for the last couple of months for Bangladesh, or food relief, they will kind of want to move on to something else, oftentimes. Uh, I mean, there are a few exceptions, like I sponsor a child with Save the Children, and all of a sudden, I want to sponsor a child till they're old or something. That I understand, but with the exception yeah. of that, with little, with, with uh, things like disaster relief, people's mind change, like the next big thing comes up. Yeah. Yemen, something happens in Yemen, all of a sudden, all the money goes to Yemen. And so these NGOs are trying to adjust to that. They're, they're yeah. really trying to stay afloat. 
Uh, and so they're like, okay, if, if the money is going to come in, if we help flood victims now, let's just say we are going to help flood victims. If it's, if the money is with education, let's just say they're really trying to stay afloat. So I, I feel bad for them. Uh, it's, it's, it's not an easy situation because they would like to stay specialized, but the funding dries up, the organization falls through. So that's more of a survival thing or hedging in some sense. Gotcha. What do you think about, uh, obviously, we're still in the midst of COVID here in the States. What do you think about uh, Bangladesh's response to COVID-19? And also, how do you think they're faring? How do you think, it's, uh, how do you think they're doing uh, compared to the rest of the world? So, I mean, you have to, one thing we have to kind of keep in mind is Bangladesh is highly densely populated. It's probably the most densely populated country among countries that have more than a million people or some version of that. Okay, so uh, there are more densely populated city states like Singapore, uh, but, you know, Bangladesh is very dense. That's just not good. Uh, I mean, it's going to be very difficult to control COVID there. And now on top of that, you add the lack of human capital. People, people are not as educated as you'd like them to be. That's true for any country that's going through this level of development, right? And when U.S. was at this level of development, they also didn't have massive awareness or whatnot. So that, that is expected. These are big things. These are big things. I mean, you, you need people to understand the science behind it and recognize how serious it is. So Bangladesh is already in a pretty bad place from that perspective. They, this is not a battle that will be easy for them. Having said that, I, I will say two things about Bangladesh uh, that gives me a little bit of hope. I'm not sure how, how much we can trust the numbers that we're getting from Bangladesh. And that is, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to say something political or whatnot. That's just true of all low-income countries. Uh, the data collection is not the greatest. There are all kinds of reasons. So from that perspective, I don't know if we're seeing the full picture. But even if we are seeing a little bit of the picture, it doesn't seem to be as bad as you think. Mm-hmm. And this, this is outside my expertise, but it seems like that's what we are seeing. And there could be multiple reasons for this, and I don't want to speculate. Uh, these are not times uh, where we should be speculating. Uh, but it, it is possible that they got a variant of COVID-19 that is not as bad, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that we won't get the bad variant at some point. So I, I think we need to keep watching. We need to be very careful. We need to try and follow the signs and try to do our best. But as of now, it seems like it's not been as bad as it could have been. Is it bad? It's still pretty darn bad. I mean, Bangladesh is getting hit by the supply chain. Uh, people are not buying our products in the country. Uh, we are not able to export as much. We are not able to import at a nice price. Prices are going up. People are in really bad shape from that perspective. Mm. COVID-19 related death, it doesn't seem to be as high, but that can change uh, pretty fast. So uh, it seems like everybody's getting it. Fatality has not gone up as much as, say, in the U.S. Uh, so that's, I guess, that. The other thing I'll say is Bangladeshis are pretty resilient. Uh, as in, not I'm not saying resilient to viruses. I don't mm-hmm. think there's such a thing. But we are a very resilient group. Like, we deal with things. Uh, yeah. you know, the river takes away our house. We move to a new place, start a new life, and we get, <laughs> get on with this. So I think that's one good thing about Bangladeshis. Uh, they, they adapt. Uh, but do you think the climate has anything to do with it in terms of uh, a resistance to it? It is possibly that. Uh, but... I think the bigger picture there is it's a resource poor country. It doesn't have fuel. It doesn't have steel. It doesn't have copper. It doesn't have gold. It doesn't have any of the things that you need for a modern economy, except it has a lot of individuals. So whenever you see a resource poor country with a lot of people, there's two things that can happen. The country can go in a direction where there's famines and they really cannot handle it. Or you fight and you fight and you fight and you get used to that way of life. Uh, and that makes you more resilient. So I, I think the second one is true for Bangladesh. 
I, I think they started off being a pretty fertile area if you go back, you know, centuries back. So people were used to a nice way of life up to a point. They would farm, there would be food, they would eat. And then as the population kind of got out of hand, they were kind of struggling, but they knew that they didn't want to settle for a life like this. They would mm. hear stories about their grandfathers and whatnot. I mean, the colonial history is obviously there, but the idea that we can go without food forever, that was not something the Bangladeshis were ready for. Uh, and mm. I'd say that's true for South Asia in general. And so I think we had that thing like, no, we are not going to be starving. We are going to make do. We are going to do the best we can. And climate change definitely doesn't help. Uh, losing all those land on the southern part of Bangladesh, that doesn't help. But in general, it's just a very resource-poor country. If you think of North Bengal, North Bengal is not uh, you know, affected by flood. All parts are not affected the same way. Some parts are. Some of those rivers go through and they get flooding. But even the people who are not in the parts that get affected by flood, they're in, also in a lot of poverty. You have droughts and stuff like that. And they're also very resilient. So there's something or other. There's not a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. But people had to make do for centuries. And uh, you know, at least the last half century has been difficult because of the population explosion. Uh, mm. But uh, that has done something to us. We are pretty resilient. We, 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 work, we work hard. We don't sit back and complain. And you'll hear like foreign agencies, foreign NGOs in Bangladesh say that all the time. There's yeah. something different about us. Or maybe I'm, I'm Bangladesh and I'm biased. But. <laughs> no, I love it. On that note, what do you, do you feel like, um, I've noticed a lot of uh, people I've been speaking to recently, like us, that have gone back to Bangladesh and either are starting companies in the private sector or working for government. Do you see yourself ever doing that? Uh, So I like to be an academic (laughs) and I like to be uh, somebody who's uh, connected with philanthropy uh, or NGOs. If I were to do some kind of, you know, uh, venture uh, in Bangladesh, it would have to be along the lines of social business. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying exactly the way Yunus talks about this, uh, but a version of this. Social business in the sense that profit maximizing would not be my major Mm -hmm. goal. I would maximize the profit for something else, not for my own pocket. So I'm very interested in big projects in Bangladesh in terms of business, running it just like a business, but then uh, taking maybe all of the profit, whatever I was supposed to earn, just give it back to the to the community. Because thankfully, you know, Alhamdulillah, things are going well on my end financially. I'm doing well. Uh, given my needs, we are doing fine. So I don't want to uh, make more money, if that makes sense for myself. Uh, but as far as bringing in new technology or kind of, Bringing something in that is actually good for people, allows for more employment and whatnot, I'd be happy to look into that. Would I be successful at that as a completely different question? Uh, I think you I, would be. <laughs> I mean, we've done really, I mean, this, uh, again, uh, looking at your website and just knowing a little bit about you, I, I'm shocked that you just started this year. It's amazing. You've raised close to $45,000, right? Um, well, right now, I think it's about more, more around 50000 but yes. That's amazing. That's, that's huge. Um, and let me know if I'm wrong. So you have about, currently, you have about four vetted uh three vetted organization right right and and maybe and the three other non-vetted organizations oh no we have uh we have roughly nine ngos that we've vetted and four volunteer groups that we've vetted oh wow that's huge and we have funded eight ngos and we have funded three of the volunteers one of the new ngos and one of the new volunteer group will potentially be funded in this funding cycle we'll see and some of the vetted organizations are are well-known organizations so they're not the so and and um, BRAC, as you said, are well-known organizations. So it's great that they're, you're also supporting them, even yeah. though they're, you know, even though even though they're well-known. What do you have going on? Uh, what's the sort of some of the you know long-term goals? What do we have going on that people should know about? Yeah. Right so, now? 
I mean, we are, the world is changing in front of our very eyes, right? Uh, so when we originally started in June, uh, our whole thought process was, hey, this is a disaster relief project. And the disaster, by definition, comes to an end. And we hope it does. And so when it comes to end, we also get done and we move on with our life. Except our long-term goal at that point was, we want to start an NGO that helps international students or expats uh, or, or you know, people who've migrated to this country help fundraise for their country when there is some kind of uh, devastation, some kind of uh, disaster relief needed. Mm. And we realized when we were going through these hoops, we are not a registered NGO in the U.S. We are not. And the reason we are not is because we considered that it takes about three months, two to three months, and it requires a lot of paperwork. And when there's a disaster, you don't have the time for that. Yeah. Uh, you're from Vietnam. There is a big earthquake, God forbid, in Vietnam. What are you going to do? You're, you're in school right now. You're going to start a registered NGO? It doesn't work that way. And so when you are not a registered NGO, you have to be very careful. There's a lot of things, rules and regulations that you don't want to violate. And we also wanted to kind of get the skills of becoming good researchers so that we can vet and we can tell people, like, I'm not just taking this money to send it to my brother in Mymensingh. It's actually a well-vetted NGO here, all the stuff. So that was the original plan that we would actually form an NGO that helps pretty much anybody who wants to vet and fundraise for their country. Now, given that we are looking at the needs in Bangladesh, it's, it's, uh, it's never-ending. It's uh, unfortunately sad. You, you want to see a goal like, we're going to alleviate poverty in Bangladesh, and that's when we are going to call a day. But that day seems to be kind of far away. So uh, we've had a lot of supporters and donators, donors who are kind of saying, you know, you guys should stick around. Uh, you know, we, why, why are you guys going away? There's still going to be North Bengal. There's still Shatkira. And hopefully over time, they will be in a much better place. But as of now, that is still a place where we need some money spent. So the, the truth is, we don't know how much longer we are going to go, but it seems like we're going to be here for a while. Uh, at least if COVID and the flooding and all that doesn't uh, go away overnight, I hope it does by all means. But if it stays, I think we're going to stick around for at least a couple more months or maybe a year or two or over time, just stick around. Uh, but that other project that I told you about the NGO where we help others, I think mm -hmm. that's something we definitely want to register and kind of then tell people like, you don't have to be registered if you want to get started, but these are some of the good practices, best practices. I think that's yeah. I mean, the, it's it's only, it's just a tax tax status, like the five hundred one c three. It's just I mean, it's really taxes. You can do a lot of things as long as, long as you know the rules. Because we we looked into it also, and then we decided not to do it. Um, it, it just didn't make sense for us either. Um, I uh, we started with uh the election, so I wanted to end with the election. What are your thoughts on the relationship with funding to Bangladesh. I actually don't know what, if there was funding increase or decrease under the Trump administration. I, I actually don't know that. But what are your thoughts on uh, how that's going to be impacted during the Biden administration, if you're aware of it? All right. So I, wa uh, I want to be careful about this because there were some meetings that we had when we were in Bangladesh with my students and myself. Okay where uh, they were closed door meetings and we, we don't necessarily want to share everything. But I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the general setup there. The general setup is uh, if you look at big organizations like USAID, uh, that, that's the international fund yep. from the U.S. goes to the Bangladesh. Sudan. And it's a big, big player. It's not a, yeah. by any means a small, it's a massive player. Their, their funding uh, actually depends on the administration here. It does. Okay. And the second thing that happens there is if the administration has certain priorities, that affects 
what priorities, where them they can send the money. So, for example, I think it's not a secret that Trump's administration was not very much a believer of climate change and human-enhanced climate change and whatnot. So they weren't. And so when it came to a lot of those projects in Bangladesh, they didn't potentially get as much funding. I'm not saying don't take my word for it, but chances are for an administration like this, that was going to happen. Uh, then there are things like you know birth control or uh, you know abortion for certain circumstances. Again, those things would probably not get as much funding under certain administrations. So the Trump administration would potentially be one of those. Uh, so that's one aspect. The second aspect is Bangladesh is developing. I mean, you take the COVID part away, you take the recent things, uh, but they are getting, you know, 7 8% growth per year for yeah. the last decade, and they're, they're doing well. This is good. Uh, so from that perspective, the role of USAID, the role of DFID is slowly going to get smaller anyways. Mm. And so Bangladesh finds itself in a really weird place. You, you have all these development workers who are like, there's so much more to do. There's women's rights, there's education, there's still food shortages, there's entrepreneurship. And then you think of AI and all that taking coming up, you know, the textile industry might be under some threat in the, in the future. So you need to kind of re readjust the economy, train people in different things. So we need a lot of these NGOs working, but the funding is starting to dry up. It's naturally going to dry up. And that is not connected to the administration. That's just a natural thing. Uh, so... You have the administrations moving around, some of the funds kind of moving around, uh, and that just kills some of the project, things that you've been building for a while, all of a sudden that stops. So that is not good. And you have the fund becoming smaller and smaller. So I think those are two of the things that are going to affect uh, Bangladeshis. Uh, the Biden administration will be good for USAID in the sense that they will have less restrictions on where they can use the money, I think. Okay, so that's me, subjectively speaking, from my understanding of the conversations. I think as far as climate change stuff goes, as far as uh, birth control-related stuff goes, uh, as far as, say, rights of um, the LGBTQA uh, plus community goes, I think there, uh, funding will, again, potentially be available. Okay. So that's... I hope that's so, too. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so, too. But uh, it's great having you on. As you said, I hope you continue your organization regardless of whether there is a disaster. and. I uh, hope you come back on and you and you talk about it. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Carmel. I do it for my people, always in my thoughts. I gotta be honest with diamonds and pearls. Yeah, yeah. Bengalis in New York, all over the world. Uh, it's the bony show. Uh, hey, can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live From the slang we spit to the gangs we with It doesn't matter, we the essence of the Bangladesh I say, hey, come on, can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live